Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'm reading the scripture today. It's from Luke 22, verses 7 to 30. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the great room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him, him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been declared, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's word. Well, uh, over the last few weeks in our city, we've been through um, some stuff together, right? We, uh, we went through a Jay's pennant run. That was, uh, that was agonizing. We went through that. We went through an election. And bad news for, you know, CBC was the same night as the Jay's game. So I know many of you were torn. Some of you were not torn at all. Um, and, and that was kind of a, a big deal. Now we have a new prime minister after, uh, well, like a term and a half, I guess, a little bit more. Um, so that's a big deal. And uh, some of you went through a teacher strike. Some of you are teachers. You went through that. Some of you have kids in elementary school. That was something to go through as well as a city. And uh, some of you don't care about this, but some of you know that Hydro One went public and you bought some shares. If you bought some and sold them a week later, you've got some extra money in your pocket today. Uh, we have offering boxes right at the front there. So, um, <laughs> Now, the, these were a lot, of, uh, a lot of changes. And I was thinking about John Mayer's song, actually, because it kind of... Uh, represents this the way that we tend to view the world around us, and that is we're hoping that something out there changes so that the world can change. 
that the way that we look at, we hope that, well, the, the guy we want to be running the country, the girl we want to be country, want, wants to be running the country gets in, and then therefore things will change. Or the person that we hope the person who gets in doesn't get in because that's how we think the world is going to change. We would love, you know, the manager sitting on the bench, just make a different call at the plate, maybe bunt the ball with a guy in third and nobody out, and then just change your strategy so that you could win a game. Or, or we want, uh, you know, we want our economic situation to change, so we hope companies treat us differently. Or, you know, some of you that are teachers are saying, yeah, we're just, we kind of found out the strike got resolved the same day you did. We're just sort of waiting for that to happen, and uh, people are talking, and, and they're going to make their decisions, and we're going to live with it one way or the other. But the, the view is that we're just kind of waiting for whatever needs to change so that the world can change. The common denominator, essentially, is that what has to change is out there. You know, in the, the lyric in that song, right, saying, like, we're... Um, we see everything that's going wrong with the world and all who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. Oh, and if we had the power to bring our neighbors home from war, you know, they would have never missed a Christmas. It's social commentary saying, well, there's lots of things that need to change, but we don't actually have the power to do it. It all sits out there. Which is interesting because, you know, in this rooted journey that we're in, for some of you, maybe you're just joining us today or you've been through this, that we're using the metaphor of a tree, which actually scripture gives us, that, that metaphor, that describes our lives. And it says that we're actually meant to grow um, as people, which, which is good because we kind of all feel that, 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 that we're, you know, we're not who we once were, but we're not who we want to be. And so we're, we're hopefully growing or hopefully moving in the right direction. And that we're meant to grow in two ways. We're meant to grow kind of down, like where roots grow down into the ground, just like a tree roots go down to find the water table and the deeper, the better, because that'll be, it'll make you stable and strong. And so we all want to be stable and have um, kind of be able to withstand storms and drought and winds and all that stuff. But then also that we're supposed to grow up and out. That, you know, as a tree, it's meant to grow up and certainly a fruit tree up and out that becomes like a blessing for everything else and for everyone else and for all living things. And so growth in a sense in, involves becoming stable and more secure, but also becoming mature, becoming strong, becoming able to be a blessing to other people. And regardless of, of whether you've got a faith background, whether you've been in the church before, or whether you would have even used that metaphor to describe your life, there's something about it, there's a lot about it that rings true, right? That we know, yeah, we're meant to grow, we want to be strong, and we also know, like, we want to be a blessing to other people. We know we, know we don't just exist for ourselves. And what's interesting in this whole um, aspect of growth is that we can come to this point of change, that we want change to happen or we think change needs to happen, but usually we have an external view of, of that needing to happen. Like that government needs to change or my employer needs to change or my employment situation needs to change or the person sitting across the dinner table from me needs to change, or the person I share a bed with needs to change. Like if those things or those people could change, then, then I could keep growing. Then, then life would get better and I could be the person I need to be. And if I'm stuck and I, I can't, it's, I need something to change. But usually we think that it's kind of out there. In this rooted journey, the whole premise of the journey has been, look, what is it that we need to go and, and put our roots into? It's God. And, and by that, we mean we need to know God more. And, and I don't mean just kind of like acquire some knowledge, like theological knowledge, and some of you are interested in theology and some of you aren't, so that's fine. No, no, knowledge as in relationship. We need to actually become more connected to God in his relationship with us because that was why he created us, to have relationship with him and relationships with other people that we would actually grow strong and become to be a blessing to others. That, that, so the closer we get to God, the more we know him, the more we understand him. And if you've been, many of you are using those rooted journals that you've been tracking along, the whole purpose of the journey is to know God more and to relate with him. And some of those exercises are around prayer, which is actually the language by which we relate to God. 
And the idea is that as we get closer to God, we will not only understand him more, but we'll understand ourselves more. One of the things that we find is as we get closer to God, well, he wants the world to change too, which is good news, right? That, that we all know that things are not as they should be out there. And we also know that things aren't as they should be in here. And so we know change is needed and not just a few minor tweaks. There is wholesale change that is needed in the culture around us, the world around us, and in my life and in your life and in my heart and in your heart. Oftentimes we can think, well, that wholesale change is going to come from a new government or a new job or a new boss or a new spouse. We think, okay, that's what needs to happen. That's wholesale change. That's how it's going to work. And so I'm just waiting until something changes so that I can keep moving in life. But the closer we get to God, the more we realize, okay, he wants the world to change too, which is good news. And some of you maybe have thought, well, I don't really know. Does God? Yes, he does. Scripture is all about his change plan for the world. But the more we get to know his plans, the more we realize, oh, they're a bit different than I thought. They're actually at times maybe a little bit perplexing. And this actually we see most evident in the life of Jesus. So Jesus is God come into the world to change the world. And, and it was interesting because when Jesus came and walked the earth, he began to, you know, people didn't know much about him. The first 30 years of his life, nobody really knew anything about him. The reason we know that is because nobody wrote anything about it. You have a record of his birth, which they only wrote after. Once they figure out somebody's significant, then they go back and say, hey, let's write about the birth. But there's a little snippet of his account when he was 12 years old. But basically from zero to 30, not much happened. And we can know that because if they would have, they would have written it down. So nothing really significant is going on in the life of Jesus. And all of a sudden, at the age of 30, he begins to have what, what we call like a more public profile or public ministry. He starts to teach publicly. And that was common in those days. The people, rabbis who would come, and they, but they were always people who had been trained, who had been, you know, kind of born to, into religious families that were going to become rabbis. Well, Jesus was born a carpenter's son. So he was kind of a, a, a nobody. He was a, tr a son of a tradesman. In those days, like, they were, uh, those were servants. They were not, uh, it wasn't like a high-paying job. It wasn't considered, he, we know the scriptures tell us he wasn't from a wealthy family. And he wasn't from pedigree. He wasn't from what the culture viewed as importance. Yet, all of a sudden, he was speaking with such authority that they were saying, who is this guy? And he was talking about God in a way that the common person was like, oh yeah, tell me more of that. And he was kind of sticking it to the religious self-righteous people and they loved that too, right? Because they're like, yeah, we kind of think God is more like the way you talk about him than the way, the way these guys talk about him. And so people were drawn to his teaching and they were hoping maybe, this is some, maybe there's, there's change coming here. There's, there was hope as he taught them. Maybe God isn't who we thought he was, and if he's anything like this guy says he is, we want to be closer to him. But it wasn't just his teaching. He was then also doing miracles. He was healing people, sick people. And this is, this is a miracle anyways, but it was so significant in that day because there were no um, healthcare facilities. There was no long-term disability. Modern medicine had not come around. And so if you were sick, and certainly if you were seriously sick, if you were born maybe crippled, if you were born deaf or blind, you were done. And in fact, your family would kind of send you out into the world to beg because you were such a burden on them. And for most of them, they didn't make enough money to be able to support someone who wasn't able to support themselves. Because when you were a child, like, you know, but from the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, you would be working in the family business and eventually taking over. So if you were someone who couldn't work, who couldn't provide, you were a burden on the family. And so, so there were many beggars. Around. And if you travel certain parts of the world where some of that is still true, you'll see that. Why? Because the families can't care for them. And so if you were sick, your life was over. And so when Jesus comes and starts to heal people, 
and heal people like lepers who were outcasts, who were basically left to die and were so infectious that people couldn't even be near them and had to create colonies to live together. He was touching them and making them whole. Their, their, literally their entire lives were changed. They suddenly became contributing members of society. And so as he's teaching, people are drawn to him, getting excited about change. As he's healing, people are getting excited about that. And then he's also doing works of power. He was casting out demons. It was a spiritually charged world. It is today, too. It's just underground. We don't see it. But then it was out in the open. And Jesus was confronting evil spirits and casting them out. And people were thinking, who is this man? He, he was able to calm storms and like speak to the weather. And so he was doing powerful things. And so all of this was creating this groundswell of hope and expectation that, ah, finally the world is going to change. And so for, certainly for the people he came to, they desperately needed change. They were under the rule of Rome. And you thought our tax system was burdensome. Rome was uh, of a different kind. Rome was basically the bully who stole your lunch money at a, at a, like on steroids. And it was, it was like the, after, after Babylon had conquered them, and then Persia, and then Alexander the Great in Greece, and then Rome conquered them, the, the Jewish people had passed for four, 500 years from one uh, ruling nation to another to now what is still considered some of the, the greatest empire ever to rule the world, was had Israel under their thumb. And so they were hoping for change. They were hoping for political, military, economic renewal. Because of Rome, their, their, their religion was constricted. Their politics were, you know, basically puppet kings. Their economy was constricted because all that they made, they had to give back to Rome. They just served them. And so they were desperate for change. And as this man starts to come, all of their kind of political, religious, economic, social structure hopes began to be placed in him and say, ah, the change we have been waiting for is here. And there was certainly enough evidence to justify their hopes. And yet, he was perplexing. Because it seemed like every time somebody would set up a date or an important conversation with someone who could be influential, Jesus would kind of offend them. They'd be like, oh, Jesus, don't you understand? Like, this is the guy, this is the person, this is the group of people that if you can kind of get with, you're going to be able to get up to where we need you to go, where, where you're going to be able to change the world. And yet, so he was always saying things that at the times where it seemed like it was perfect for him to just step into the spotlight, he would walk away. And they were confused. This is the change we've been waiting for. Can't you see it? Isn't that why you came? Why do you keep turning around from this? And so his disciples, really, who were his, his inner circle, his followers, he had many followers, disciples, um, but, but he had 12 that were kind of with him all the time. They were the ones kind of riding this way. I mean, this was the greatest thing ever. They had left their jobs, and they were just traveling with them, and he was teaching them how to teach and how to talk and how to heal and doing some of the same things he was doing. And so they were riding this. It was a, like an amazing ride for them. And yet they were a bit perplexed, too, because he didn't seem to totally want to change. That We didn't want to seem to deal with Rome. He seemed to be uninterested in the fact that Rome was ruling them like this. And, and, and as much as he would criticize the religion of the day, he didn't seem to be doing too much to overturn it. And so they were saying, come on, like we have so much hope and expectation for you. If you change, like our lives will get better. One day he calls a secret meeting and they think, okay, great. You know, this, and it was secret because, you know, we had all the secret handshake stuff. You ever, you know, those of you that watch baseball, I know some of you were new. There was lots of room on the bandwagon, so you jumped on. The, the, and all the symbols that they do, it's like, what's happening next? So there was kind of like this secret handshake. Okay, you're going to go into the town. You're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water, bump, fist, boom. He's going to take you up to the secret room, okay? So they're like, okay, well, this is like, what's going on? This is a special meeting. And, when he get, and the other reason they knew it was special was because it was Passover, which was, uh, you know, one of, if not the most important family night of the year. And he pulls all of these guys who would have been heads of households out of their families for that night and said, you're doing Passover with me. So they would have thought, okay, now this is going to go down. 
that now we're finally going to, he's got this planned secret meeting. It's Passover, but we're not with our families. We're with him, so this is a big deal. And they sit down together at dinner, and he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. And they're like, oh, yes, yes, leaning in. You know, what's the plan, Jesus? The plan to change the world? How is this all going to go down? And it's like as they gather and they're leaning in, he says, here's the plan. I'm going to die. And they didn't quite get it because he was talking about, like, so he, the Passover meal, just kind of a quick sort of history lesson, it was, it was a meal that reminded the Israelites that they once were slaves and they had been rescued from Egypt. And so they did this thing and they had bread and they had some herbs and they had wine and they'd have a lamb that they would eat. And normally the person who hosted the Passover meal would take the bread and say, this is the bread of our affliction. In other words, this bread symbolizes the pain that our ancestors went through when they were in Egypt. And then the bitter herbs would remind them of that. And then, um, you know, they would wear the clothes that they wore when they escaped from Egypt. And then they would eat the lamb. That was the whole Passover dinner. This time, there's no lamb. And Jesus takes the bread and he doesn't say, this is the bread of our affliction and our ancestors. He says, this is my body. And he breaks it. This is my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. This was not standard Passover language. He was saying to them, here's my plan. This is how we're going to change the world. I'm going to die. And he starts talking about kingdoms and like someone's going to betray me and whatever. And they kind of, you know, it's like when Homer was trying to teach Santa's little helper to, to sit. Remember, he's like, blah, 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 sit. Didn't hear anything else. They didn't hear, I'm going to die. All they heard was kingdom. Oh, great. Excited. And the kingdom language was loaded terminology for a first century Jew because they were literally sitting under the thumb we're under the heel of a kingdom that was grinding them into the ground. And so for them, the promise of kingdom was like, yes, like Jesus is going to become king. Like he, they, they thought that politically, literally they meant everything's going to change for us economically, religiously, socially, if this guy becomes king. And so he's talking about kings and he says, someone's going to betray me. One of you in here is a bad apple, but there's also a kingdom. So it launches them into these two conversations like, hey, who's, who's the bad person? They're kind of looking around. And then they start saying, hey, when Jesus has his kingdom, I wonder who's going to be the, you know, at his right hand. I wonder who's going to be most important. They did not hear what he said about dying. All they heard was kingdom. They're like, great, this is going to be good. Who's going to be the most important? And it says they started arguing about it. And Jesus calls him in again. It's like, see, you guys didn't hear what I said. Here's my plan to change the world. I'm going to die. And then you're going to die. And we're going to change the world. This is the plan. I'm going to die. And then you're going to die and we're going to change the world. And he says to them, I'm going to die. It's my body broken for you. They didn't quite get it. And he says, yeah, I'm talking about a kingdom. But let me step back for a moment. Because as soon as I say the word kingdom, you guys start arguing about who's going to be the most important. And I want you to think about this for a second. Okay? God, it says, God conferred on me a kingdom. <clears throat> God gave me a kingdom. And I'm giving you <clears throat> a kingdom. But look at my life. Did I lead in that kingdom like a political leader? Like someone who typically uses authority in this culture? And he points, he says, you know all the leaders in this culture or the people who lead. They call themselves benefactors. In other words, and the, and the, the Greco-Roman sort of social system was built on wealthy people, important people who had the money, and, and a lot of that money was tied up in land. So there was very few rags to riches stories. Like if your family was wealthy, you would stay wealthy. The land just got passed on, the business got passed on, and that's how it works. So if you were, if you were rich systemically, you were, you were perpetually rich. If you were poor, you were systemically poor. And so the rich people would use their um, money 
to garner, uh, like basically have people owe them. So they would do things for other people, but they called themselves benefactors. You said, because the system is, look, if I'm going to help you out, you owe me. A little bit like the Sopranos, right? If I'm going to do something for you, don't forget, right? Because I'm going to call you into that at some point. So they had, they used their money basically to benefit themselves, not just the wealth they had, but to use the influence to use poor people who needed stuff to indebt themselves, to, to get them indebted to them. And he said, that's how people use influence, power, and authority. That's how the kingdoms of this world work, but not with you. He says, look at my kingdom. Jesus, God gave me a kingdom. You have been with me, right, for these last three years. Have I been a king or a servant? He says, you've seen me. What have I done? I have lived my life for others. I have gone around serving other people. Everything that I have done, I have been doing it for others. That I understood God's mission for me in life is to serve. He says, I came to you and you call me in John 13. He says, you call me Lord and master. And you're right, I am. You've seen all the stuff that I can do. I can command the wind and the waves. I can cast demons out. I can heal diseases that nobody's ever been able to do. I can teach in authority in ways that you've never heard before. But how do I actually live amongst you? As a servant. Are you more important than me? No. But do I serve you? Yes. He says, that's the kingdom God gave me. And that's the way I have lived. And now I'm going to go die. And you are going to die as well. Not literally, you're going to go and die to yourself. You are going to die to selfishness. You are going to die to a way of living that says, life is about me. This is for me. You're going to die to a mentality that says, if I have riches, authority, power, influence, it's because I gained it. It's for my gain. No, he says, that's how the rest of the world lives. Look at my life. God gave me a kingdom and I served. I'm giving you a kingdom and you're going to go die too. I'm going to die and you're going to die. That's how we're going to change the world. Doesn't matter what political systems are going on around you. Doesn't matter if Rome remains the way it is. You don't need anything out there to change for us to change the world. I'm going to die, and then you're going to die. You're going to go and die to your selfishness, to a way of thinking about yourself and the world, and you're going to learn a new way. I'm going first, and you're going after, and this is how we're going to change the world. He pointed to his life and said, that's how I've done it. That's how I want you to do it. That's how the kingdom works. And you know, they got it. That's what they did. Jesus went and died, well, immediately after they all abandoned him because <laughs> they didn't quite get it. He went and died, they all left. But after, they started to understand and the church was born and the church became the community of servants. The Emperor Julian in the 4th century, and they called him, the church called him Julian the Apostate because he was so against Christians. And he was one of the people, persecution against Christians had sort of died down, but they still didn't like them at that point. He said he was so disgusted with his own social system and his governors, and he says, look, when the plagues and stuff ripped through Rome, and, and Roman families were throwing out their sick people into the streets because they didn't want to get infected, and so they're still alive with this infection, the Christians would come and care for them and bury them. They would nurse them until they died, and they would bury them. And he said, this is despicable. He said, the Christians care for our people better than we care for our people. It was the early church that first started hospitals for the sick because they understood Jesus died, we die, and we're going to change the world. They understood we have been sent into the world to change the world by serving. 
That's the call because our master died, and so we now are going to go give up our lives. And you know, that has been the history of the church all the way through it. It's interesting because Jesus was talking to these 12 people, and one of them was going to leave and betray him. They were going to add another one, and they would be the 12 apostles. But he wasn't saying to individuals, this is your plan individually. He was talking to a community which would become the church. You know, in Scripture, it tells us that the 12 apostles are like the stones. Like Jesus is the first stone in the church, and then the 12 apostles are built on, and we are built on top of them. In other words, the church's call into the world is to serve it. We of all people should know this, right? You know the, one of the verses that we love to quote, John three sixteen, right? What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What does it say in verse 17? For God does not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And so the church should not be this group in the world that's always wagging its finger at what the world is doing and saying, see, if the world would just do this, or if the politicians would just do this, or the businesses would just do this, the world would change. Or if my neighbor would stop doing this, if people would just be more morally um, upstanding, the world would be better. No, that's not what the church has been sent into the world to do. And as Rick Warren has said, you know, we're, we're supposed to be the body of Christ, but it seems like we've cut off our arms and legs and all we are is a mouth that speaks out against what shouldn't be happening. And Jesus says, no, no, God sent me into the world and I saved it with my message of grace by giving up my life, by serving it. And so I'm sending you into the world to do the same thing. And so the church in the world does the same thing that Jesus does when he was in the world, which was to give up his life, to die to selfishness, to serve others. And this is the calling of the church and it always has been. And the early church understand it. And if you look throughout history, it was Mother Teresa who totally understood the call of Jesus and she was having opportunities and someone was trying to convince her to marry him. And people were confused, you know, getting, you know, uh, accusing her of all this stuff. And she was offered these very kind of good, comfortable positions where she was, the convents where she was. But she says, no, I know what it means for Jesus to have died and now I'm to die. I got to go to Calcutta. I got to go to the worst place in the world. And William Wilberforce in the 1800s, understood that as a lawyer and he became a Christian, he thought, wait a second, I'm a lawyer and there's the North Atlantic slave trade. There are people that are being uh, treated as property and traded across this ocean. It's up to me to stop it. And he understood that if Jesus, his, his savior, gave his life away, that's what he was supposed to do. And so he understood his life in terms of freeing other people and serving other people. And so that's what he did. And a few hundred years later, Martin Luther King, his same conviction about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, also gave up his life also laid down his life, also lived his life to serve others. The Salvation Army, the Red Cross, World Vision, Red Cross was originally founded as a Christian organization. It's not now, but it was. It's a cross. It's how it started. Most of the humanitarian organizations in the world were started by Christians, by people who said, we understand this is what we need to do. If Jesus died to change the world. He's called us to give up our lives the same way. And do you think any of those people that started out, whether it was Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King or any of these people that started World Vision or Compassion, had the, oh, we're going to be famous people. Did they start out of famous people? No, they just understood, this is what I need to do. Jesus has died. Lay down his life. He's died. Now I'm supposed to die, and that's how we're going to change the world. And Christians we know about and Christians we've never heard of have done that. Isn't it interesting that of, of all the major world religions, the only founder who died a kind of a, 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 a bloody, inglorious death was Jesus. Buddha died of old age. Muhammad died of old age. Jesus died 33 years old. 
disregarded, dishonored on a bloody cross. And 2.2 billion people around the world call him Savior and Lord. How is it that the symbol of the cross is now a symbol of life and victory when it symbolized death? Because he said, this is my plan. I'm going to die. You're going to die. And we're going to change the world. Now, some of you are sitting here and saying, you're, maybe you're not a Christian or you think like, well, you know, lots of Christians in the world don't live like this. You're right. And every time the church has gotten away from this, every time the church has prioritized kingdom over death, it's got it wrong. But every time Christians and the church have said, yes, he died, now I'm going to die, and that's how we're going to change the world. They did. And so even if you don't believe this, you're attracted to people who live like this, right? We don't want to be around people who are like benefactors, who use their power, their influence, and service in their own benefit, and who we always feel indebted to, even if they do help us. We actually want to be around the people who are willing to die, who live their lives in the service of others. They're the people we admire, they're the people we want to be closest to, they're the people who when we, we know how truly humble they are because we walk away from being with them feeling like a million bucks. And we want to be like them. And even if you're not a Christian, you wish that the 2.2 billion people in the world who call themselves Christians did act like this because you know it would change the world. That was Jesus' plan. I'm going to die, then you're going to die, and that's how we're going to change the world. So often we get into serving the world, forgetting the first two parts of Jesus' message, just think, we're going to change the world. And whatever pop song we need to kind of fuel the altruism or the hope, and yet you know when we get into the world's problems, when we try to change what's going on in our lives or in our marriage or our neighborhoods or our families or our, our, our companies or even political systems, you start to peel back the layers. You realize, wow, this is way tougher than I thought. And what, what, in the place of hope and altruism becomes despair. Or maybe thinking, I got it wrong. Only if we start with, he died, I'm going to die. That's how we're going to change the world. Are we prepared for failure, difficulty, small results, no results, backwards results, loss, death? When we start with his death and my death, and we look back in faith and say, no, that's going to change the world, then are we prepared to go and serve it? Because we know it's not going to feel good. It's going to feel hard. We know it's probably not going to be met with tons and tons of results. And even as I'm holding up sort of, in a sense, the poster children for Christians who have given up their lives, we know most, of, most people who serve Jesus like that aren't ever known like Mother Teresa, and, and even on the day that she died, in one sense, her own death was just sort of overshadowed by the death of Princess Diana. Even on that day, the world couldn't really recognize what she had done, taking nothing away from Princess Diana. But it, isn't it interesting? It, just, it was still totally eclipsed by what was going on here. And most of us can say, well, that's not going to be my life. You're right. Jesus said it. I'm going to die. You're going to die. And that's how we're going to change the world. They didn't get it, so when he died, they scattered, left, ran. And yet throughout history, this is what's happened. Now, our great fear in this, to, to say, okay, okay, Jesus has called me to die to myself and to do something, to carry a message of his grace, to carry the hope that is found in him and to be willing to lay down my life for other people. The things that will keep you from believing that this is true. Remember last week, Mark talked about how we have an enemy in our lives, Satan, and that his, his goal is dis destruction and his tool is deception, how he lies to us. Here's the lies that will come into my life and your life when we hear this call of Jesus to die, to give up ourselves, to die little deaths. Is, I don't have enough. 
and I won't have enough. I don't have what it takes. I, can't, I cannot change the world. Jesus, I can't make a difference. I can't really change. I can't change myself. How am I supposed to change anything around me? I, I, I don't have enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough intellect. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough capacity. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough influence. I don't have what it takes. Or I won't have enough. Jesus, this is all I have. If I give it away, what will be left for me? If I give this away, who's going to look after me? If I give this money away, if I give this time away, if I spend myself on someone, who's going to look after me? Because I don't know about you, Jesus, but if you haven't been paying attention, I'm kind of a broken person too. So I need somebody to look after me. So if I go out and live my life to save others, who, who's going to help me? Who's going to cover my back? I don't have enough. I won't have enough. I want to ask you something. That little upper room, you know, last supper conversation. Our church is 10 times the size of that group. Who else knew they were in there? There's a big strategic meeting that everybody had said, hey, you guys get together and you tell us you're going to have the plan and change the world. Did anyone know we're in there except the guy who they bumped fist with to get the room? Nobody knew. They were uneducated, most of them, marginalized. Nobody was interested in what they were talking about. Nobody cared enough for Jesus' plan to change the world. Everybody had different plans. Nobody really thought he would amount to anything. He came from Galilee. They thought this, it was kind of the area of the world where they thought, like, nothing good could come from there, right? It's like, it's like Saskatchewan or something. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's not nice. I shouldn't say that. Then people will say, well, he's, he doesn't have any importance. He doesn't have any good stock. He doesn't come from any place significant. He doesn't have any good education, and neither do any of his followers. We can misunderstand this group of world changers as being somehow important and influential. Of course, we call them saint this and saint that now. They were nothing then. Nobody was calling them saints then. They were nobodies, and they were small. They did not have enough. And Jesus says, that's the idea. That's the plan. I'm going to die. You guys go lay down your life. And that's what they did. And suddenly, 2.2 billion people, the cross is worn around the necks and on the desktop backgrounds and the bookmarks and the Bibles of people all over the world. They didn't get it. It was never enough. It's never been enough. I don't have enough is a lie. And I won't have enough. Jesus says, look, guys, one day when he says, you know, I, what's this strange reference where he says, you know, one day you'll sit at my table and eat and all this stuff. It's just a picture basically saying, don't worry. In the end, you'll have a full cup. In the end, we will feast together. In the end, you will be full. In the end, you will be running over. You will have more than you ever need. It's just not now. Right now, we're going to die. In the end, you'll have a full cup. So don't worry whether you won't have enough. In the end, I know. And when he rose from the dead, they understood. Ah, you died, but you rose. Now nothing can stop you. Now you're going to make good on that reward that if we die today, later on, I'll have enough. Later on, I won't be empty-handed. Today we die. Later on, we feast. And that was his message to them. And so for you and I, we need to take the risk to die a little death. And I'm going to give you a couple of, of, of ways that that can happen. In your home groups over the next, like we're, we're talking about, what does it mean to serve, that God has called us to serve? In your home groups, those of you in home groups over the next couple of weeks, and really what we want to do on an ongoing basis in your home group every semester is find a way to serve, a little way. 
It may seem small. It may seem marginal. You may think, well, what's the point? What's this going to do? Remember those 11, 12 people in that little upper room, nobody knew what they were doing. It seemed so insignificant. It seemed so small. But Jesus says, this is the plan. I die, you die, and then we'll change the world. So whatever your home group, and maybe it's finding hard, how do we serve? Keep looking and don't give up and don't lose heart that this seems small against the problems and the challenges that are in your environment or your neighborhood or your city. I also want to point to the fact that there are people right under your nose, people already in your circle, that you can die a little death to serve. Maybe it's time you don't think you have to give. Maybe it's a listening ear or some emotional burden that you don't feel like you can carry. Maybe it's a meal that you need to buy for someone. Maybe it's a month of rent that you need to cover for somebody. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it's that person you've been avoiding because you don't know what to do. You think, I don't have what they need. I can't help them. So I'm not going to. Die a little death and say, okay, Jesus, I don't get it. You died. I'm going to die. You're going to change that world. You're going to change that person. Not my job. I don't need to change them. I just need to love them. I just need to serve them. You were sent into the world to serve and love, and now you're sending me into the world to serve and love. This is what it means to be the community of Jesus, the community of Christians, the community of Christ followers. And then some of you, many of you serve in this church, and you die little deaths every week to do it. But some of you haven't gotten in the game yet. And let me just tell you, we got enough people to do stuff, but you're missing out. You're missing out on seeing God use your little death to change the world. And two of the areas that, that we need that because we're in a, in a, in a, a, semi -per, a, non, a non permanent environment, we need people for setup. That's, you got to die a death to just get here an hour earlier. Right? We can say, God, I surrender all, but maybe he's just asking you to get up an hour earlier. That's hard. Die a death. Say, okay, I'll help. Maybe some of you with kids, you're saying, I don't know, kids, kids are icky, kids have germs, I don't, and I don't even relate to them, I don't even know, I can't, my back hurts if I kind of crouch down. I don't know how to do this, but we have so many of them in this church. And we need people who are willing to say, I'm going to die a little death and I'll come alongside you and serve you. Or I'm going to die a death to my insecurities thinking, I can't do this. I can't work with kids. I'm not funny. I'm not goofy. I'm not whatever. I don't know how to teach. It's a little insecurity in us that needs to die. The obsession with self, it's just a little thing. It's a death that Jesus says, come on, I die, you die. That's how we change the world. And so maybe there's an opportunity. Maybe we say, like, whatever it is, I haven't been dying. I want to die a little death. I want to test this out. What you and I have been called to in the world is not an easy thing. And you know that most of the things we do for leisure and whatever is just escape the difficulty of life because we know actually Jesus is calling us to die. That's a hard word. As they leaned in and he says, here's the plan. I'm going to die. Then you're going to die. That's how we're going to change the world. And at first they were like, whoa. They come to arrest him. They were gone. This is too hard. It's hard. You know to see true life change happen, to truly die to yourself. To have the faith to say, somehow if I do this and take this step and I do it again and again, imperfectly as it may be. Like, thank God that the disciples abandoned Jesus because we know he wasn't holding up an example of perfect obedience. <laughs> they didn't get it. They were faithless. They were all over the place. Yay, we're just like them. You know how hard it is to see change in your own life, never mind the people around you and the world around us. This last April, I was at a conference and I was listening to Andy Stanley and he was talking to church leaders. He said, you know how hard it is to see the change that we want to see in the world around us, to see the change we want to see in our own lives. And he said, but I want you to think for a moment. And he put up a picture of when he was at the Colosseum in Rome. And he said, we were standing outside Caesar's arch. It was part of the Colosseum that was dedicated to where Caesar sat and watched the games. 
And in, the, in that Colosseum, right, that's where many Christians died. Historically, you can read some of, the, some of the stories of the martyrs who sat there waiting to die and what they wrote about it. It's mind-blowing if you can read it. One of them is named Perpetua. If you want to read something on that, write down. Just Google Perpetua and read her story. She's a pregnant woman, young girl, about to die, about to be thrown to the lions because of her faith in Jesus. They were literally dying for it. He said, imagine if you could get down there. And, and he said, in, in Caesar's arch, he said there was a cross when he went and took the picture. And he said to the tour guide, there's a cross in Caesar's arch. He says, yeah, yeah, in 1600. He said, no, 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 no. There's a cross in Caesar's arch. He said, imagine you sat down next to one of these people that was about to go die. And they said, look, I know you can't imagine this, but one day this entire Colosseum will be rededicated to Christian martyrs. It will be rededicated to people like you. One day, I know you can't imagine this, but there will be countries you've never heard of, speaking languages you've not known, writing songs about Jesus that you're about to die for. One day, I know you can't imagine this, but people will actually name their sons Peter and Paul and Andrew, and they'll name their dogs Nero and Caesar. <laughs> I know you can't imagine it. You can't imagine that one day, right where Caesar's sitting, there will be a cross. When we look at what it costs us, what it could cost us, or what we think could never happen, we need to look back and say, look what God has already done. Could that person sitting in the base of that Colosseum, this marginal following of people that were literally dying by the thousands every time they got baptized, could they ever have imagined that one day, two billion people around the world, and that we are here because they refused to be selfish? They refused to not die. They said, okay, he died, we'll die, and the world will be changed. And you and I are sitting here with the gospel printed in our hearts, in our heads. So don't say, I don't have enough. Don't say, it won't be enough. Don't say, I can't make a difference. Don't say what Jesus asked me to do. It doesn't work. We know it's die first, then change. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that what you have called us to is not an easy thing, and yet we know there is so much brokenness around us, in our city, in our lives, that desperately needs transformation, that desperately needs change. And so I just want to thank you that you died, that you showed us a different way, that you showed us a different way to lead, that, that true power, influence, and transformation does not come from education, intellect, wealth, good strategy, that you've showed us a different way to lead, that we don't have to sit around waiting for the world to change, looking at people out there thinking, if only this, if only that, that you said, don't worry about what they're doing. I died, now you die, and that's how we're going to change the world. And so give us your spirit that was willing to take the hard road. Open our eyes to see opportunities around us, maybe right in front of us, and open our hearts to be willing to say, okay, I'll die a little death here. I don't know what this is totally going to accomplish. It seems like it's not much. It seems like it's woefully small compared to the need. But I'm going to do it. Give us your courage. Give us faith to see what God has already done. Faith to remember that the reason we are here is because men and women, year after year, century after century, have said, okay, he died, I'll die. And that's how we're going to change the world. God, use what we do as a church, as a community, 
of little Christs who are willing to follow after you in your footsteps, in your model of servanthood. Use what we do all over the city, in our homes, in our relationships, in our marriages, with our kids, with our friends, with our family, to change the world. It's a miracle that only you can do, but you have been doing it over and over and over again. And so that's why we sing about it. That's why we praise you. That's why we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, if you don't, doesn't weird you out, just turn your hands up to, to God. We're going to ask for his blessing. I just want to bless you with a new source of love in your life. That, that it won't be because you love the other person that, that's going to motivate you to serve. Because you love kids, you're going to serve kids. Or because you love your spouse, you're going to serve your spouse. Or because you love your neighbor, you're going you're to serve them. Or because you love that person that's needing some of you that you feel you don't have to give. That all of a sudden you're going to have love because of them. No, it's a new source of love that comes from the one who is, is, has an endless supply. That can pour his love into you. And that out of his love for you, you overflow. I just want to bless you with that, a new source of love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen.